Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Good morning, Hillside. Good of you guys to be here. Uh, always excited about an opportunity to share God's word with you, uh, and this morning we're going to jump right into God's word. Amen. So I want to start with a quote uh, from John Calvin, and this is what it says. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And so it probably doesn't need much reminding this morning that the knowledge of God can be difficult to come by, right? We get that he's God. But I, I do think on occasion we need to be reminded of the knowledge of ourselves and be reminded that the knowledge of ourselves can be difficult to come by. And I think the reason why is because we can be prone to think that we have it. We can be prone to feel like we understand the depths of ourselves. Uh, but the fact is that no one knows themselves as deeply as they ought to know themselves, Right? And so I have two children, and I will venture, I'll step out on a limb to say if you have kids, as a matter of fact, uh, if you know kids, um, I'll step out on another limb. If you've ever seen a kid, like, I don't care where you've seen them, you have probably at some point looked at kids with your hands on your head, and you're going, what in the world are they doing? What are they thinking? What are they saying? In my house, typically, I'm saying, why would you jump from there? Right. And we and, and in those moments, we lose perspective because raise your hand if you've never been a kid before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's none of us. And so in those moments, sometimes I call my parents and yes, sometimes I call for them for advice and counsel. But in these cases, I call them with one question. I say, hey, can you tell me what I was like when I was a kid? I couldn't have been like this. And my mom will get on the phone and uh, she'll start with, oh, I remember the day that you were born. It was a sunny day, and uh, you were such a big baby and all this stuff. And I'd be like, Mom, is Dad there? And she'd say, yeah, your dad's right here. i say, put it on speaker. And I'd say, Dad, what was I like as a child? And my dad is a straight shooter, so he'll start to tell you, oh, you got into this and you got into that. And I'm saying, okay, that's what I needed. Tell me about who I really was, right? And so today we're going to look at that a little bit. The prophet Jeremiah wrote this. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then David, who is a great knower of self, right, wrote much of the Psalms. In Psalms 19, he wrote this. He said, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. In other words, we never get to the bottom of our own sinfulness, right? And so what David is saying here is, in our own prayers of confession, we should be saying, Lord, uh, Declare me innocent, even for those hidden sins that are tucked down so deep in my heart or hidden behind my own self-justification that I can't even see where they are. Because only you really know the depths of my sinfulness. And if we're being honest, if our forgiveness depended on the fullness of the knowledge of our own sins, we would all perish. Because no one knows the depth of their own sinfulness. 
But there's good news. The Bible always brings us to hope. Amen? And there is hope in this. And the Bible doesn't leave us without uh, ability to know ourselves more. And so just because there's a fact that we can't know ourselves fully doesn't mean that there's uh, not an ability for us to know ourselves deeply. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we're going to spend the time this morning in that text. Um, And Paul writes here and gives us a very clear message of the state of our soul. But he does it for a reason. He does it so we can see what we need, and then we can be overtaken with gratitude and joy when God gives it to us. So join me as we read uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We're going to start verses 1 through 3, and this is what it says about us. It says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passage of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Clear message. And so verse number one, it says this, it says we were dead in our sins. We were dead. We all know what dead means. Uh, Dead means dead, right? Dead means lifeless. Um, But it's interesting here, because look at it with me. This this is obviously not uh, physical lifelessness, right? Uh, And believe it or not, it's also not moral lifelessness, right? Somebody can give to charity. It's a good thing. So it's not moral lifelessness. So what are they talking about? Look at verse number two. Look at the verbs here. We're walking, right? We're following. Look at verse three. There's passions of the flesh, desire of the body and of the mind. That's not dead. That's not dead. What does dead mean? We're walking, we're following, we're passionate, we're desiring. Dead means spiritually dead. So in other words, by nature, we are like a rock towards God. We are completely unresponsive towards him. We're in complete rebellion against God and his ways, opposing everything that God is, opposing everything that God wants, everything that God desires. We're in complete opposition. Something dead cannot respond to any type of stimuli, right? If there's something dead here, We can scream at it all we want. We can kick it and prod it all we want, and it's completely unresponsive. And spiritually speaking, that is the state that we're in when it comes to God. And Paul's use of the word dead here, I think, is extremely significant and extremely purposeful. And the reason why he uses the word dead is that it leaves no middle ground. Because everybody understands that you're either dead or alive. Even if you're on your deathbed, hey, you alive or you dead? Which one? You're dead or alive. And so that's the reason why Paul uses this very direct language. And death is always synonymous with sin, right? And the reason, sometimes we kind of can take sin lightly, but listen, sin doesn't make friends. Sin takes captives. Sin is a torturer. Sin is a killer, right? It's a slave master, And it's not something to be taken lightly. And so it's always synonymous with death. And it says here in verse number two that we're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
And so we often think of God working in us, but we rarely think of like Satan working in us, right? The devil working in us. I'm old school. So back in the day in the churches that I grew up, satanic meant uh, Ouija boards. Remember Ouija boards? Say, that's what satanic meant. Satanic meant like uh, spinning vinyl records backwards, and that would like scare the daylights out of. I mean, growing up, we used to watch all these like Christian movies, and they just put this music backward, and we're like running for upstairs. We're like, where's mom? But listen, let me tell you something. Let's make it clear. All sin is satanic. All sin is satanic. And listen, there's some things that are satanic that even the world may see that way. We watch the news. We see what goes on around us, and it's satanic because it is, right? But murder isn't the only thing that's satanic. Listen, our pride is satanic in the way that it puts ourselves above God and elevates ourselves above other people. Our lust is satanic in the way that it devalues people that are made in the image of God. Even our impatience is satanic in the way that we don't trust God and his timing and what he's trying to accomplish in us. And so we take it upon ourselves to do it in our own timing and in our own way. Right? All sin is satanic. Sin is ugly and it's demonic and it's satanic. And we were all trapped in it. And we were all spiritually dead. And Paul's saying this because it's so important for us to understand ourselves so that we can then look forward to what God does for us, and we can have gratitude and joy for what he does for us. And so even early on here, he acknowledges a couple of things. He acknowledges the world system as a problem. We probably would all agree with that. He acknowledges uh, the power of the air. In other words, he acknowledges the devil uh, as a problem. We would all agree with that. But ultimately, our nature is the problem. Our nature is the problem. Verse number three, it says this. It says, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And the point here is to make clear that the problem is first and primarily not what we do, but who we are by nature, right? And so we're going to need at some point here, we're going to need a brand new life. We're going to need a brand new nature. We're going to have to be born again and brought to life through Christ. Right? And so it's not just about what you do and about what's around you. We can be so quick to blame other people and other things for our own sinfulness. And listen, let me make it extremely clear. I am my main problem. I am. You aren't my problem. My parents are not my main problem. My family is not my main problem. I am my problem. I am by nature suited for wrath. You know what that means? It means when God is angry at me, he is doing actually the perfectly right and just, just and righteous thing towards me to be angry. He's giving me actually exactly what I deserved to be angry at me. We're children of wrath. That's what it says. David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was brought forth in iniquity. I came into this world bent and rebellious and, and, and selfish and self-centered and prideful and demanding. And by nature, almost skilled at making everyone else think that they're the problem around me. Well, if it wasn't for you and if it wasn't for my family and if it wasn't for this. No, no, no. By nature... We need a savior. 
not by circumstance. And so we got to get that. And Paul wants us to understand that so we can see the glorious light of what the gospel brings to us. So in these first three verses, Paul lays out this clear message that the world and the devil and the flesh are kind of in unity, conspiring in a rebellion against God and against God's ways. And, and it puts us in this dead place where we're unresponsive to even acknowledge God and want anything to do with him. But as I mentioned before, there is hope. There is hope. There is good news. Read it with me. Verses 4 through 7, this is what it says. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Listen, verse 4 starts with, I think, the most powerful contraction in Scripture. But God. These two words are at the very heart of the gospel. And the reason why is because you can put anything you want in front of it, but the truth and the power of what follows still remains and will always remain. That he is rich in mercy and that he is great in love and that he is sovereign and powerful grace towards us. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, you know, him crucified and raised to life, defeating sin, death, hell, and the grace. Listen, I got news for you. We can be made alive. And that's good news. That's good news. And notice the contraction doesn't mention anything that came before it. It doesn't mention the world. It doesn't say, uh, but the world did something. It doesn't say, but the devil failed or did something. No, it doesn't say, but you did something. It says, but God. And that's because he's the only one with the richness of mercy. He's the only one with the greatness of of love. He's the only one with the power of sovereign grace to make us alive. Isn't that amazing? Listen, this is the gospel. We can never grow out of the gospel. Never allow ourselves to intellectually grow away from the gospel. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we were dead, and that because of his richness of mercy, because of his greatness of love, because of the power of his sovereign grace, he makes us alive. And so in the midst of all of this, Paul, in verse 5, reminds us again that we were dead. And at this point, you're going like, Paul, we got it. <laughs> like, we got it. Why are you reminding us again? Look at what it says. It says, in the middle of this good news, it says, even when you were dead in your trespasses, made you alive together with Christ. And I think he does it for two reasons. The first, you will never enjoy to the full the greatness of the love of God until you realize and remember that you were dead. It allows us to... to to look at him with this overwhelming gratitude and joy. And so even in the midst of him knowing that he just said it, 
as he comes into the gospel and the good news, he just reminds, he intersects it right in the middle. He says, it's all great news, but don't forget that you were dead and you were unresponsive and nothing of your own works has brought you to this place to be made alive. And he has that reminder. Have you ever had like a near-death experience? I hope not. Um, but when I was on the phone, my dad asked him who I was. He reminded me of a couple that I had. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but I do remember at least one of them. So when I was about six or seven years old, uh, we went away on a family vacation. We were in a hotel. I was in the pool. I could swim. And I think I was actually in a section of the pool where, like, if I was on my toes, I can actually have my head above water, which actually makes this story a little bit more embarrassing now that I say it. Um, but somehow, I took in some water. And I just remember, just like that, just because I took in the water, my mind, like, turned off. And I'm, like, drowning. I'm dying. <laughs> and here's my dad on the side of the pool, fully dressed, right? Has his sneakers on. You know, this is the 80s. He had his dad socks on. You know, the socks that come up to your calf, right? He had his cargo shorts. Every pocket had something in it. And he jumps into the pool. He's only like a little bit behind waist deep, and he just picks me up out of the water. And he had to almost like shake me and say, stop flailing. I got you. And in that moment, like, I just couldn't let him go. Like, I just grabbed onto him and just held him. And I, what I remember the most is this. <gasps> and that breath that I got, and just thinking, like, I'm alive. And I remember the response was just overwhelming gratitude and overwhelming love and overwhelming joy, and I just never wanted to let him go again. I was like this six-year-old kid just grabbing onto my dad. The other thing that it gave me is it gave me an understanding of the dangers of water, Right? And so when we're made alive, likewise should be our response. Even more so, when he makes us alive, it should be overwhelming gratitude towards God. Overwhelming love, overwhelming joy. And the understanding of the dangers of sin and disobedience. And this desire to just never let him go. When our eyes are open, when, we're, when we take that breath of life, of eternal life, that we just never want to let it go. And sometimes I think we can just take this so lightly. I do. You know, you just say, you know, I mean, what's the big deal? Listen, I grew up in the church. I kept my nose clean. I'm a pretty decent guy. What's the big deal? What are you singing like that for? I come in here, people have their hands lifted up. What, what are your hands lifted for? You know what the reason is? Because in those moments, we recognize and remember that we were dead. And we recognize in those moments that we couldn't do anything about it. And then we get a glimpse of this God who has this richness of mercy and this greatness of love, and even though I'm suited for wrath, instead he gives me grace on top of it. And that just, it just makes us lift our hands. It just makes us sing. It gives us this gratitude and this joy that's unexplainable. And so that's what Paul's pulling out of us here. He's reminding us that we were dead in our sins. And it took great love 
And it's a great, overflowing, never running out mercy. And it took sovereign grace. And the second reason I think Paul mentions this again, that we were dead in in verse number five, uh, is so that we can guard against self-righteousness. It's so that we can guard against self-righteousness. So it can also be easy for us, I think, to uh, see what's going on in the world. And it, it feels like especially today, but I'm sure every generation would say especially today. But we can see what's going on in the world, and, and we could be, it could be so easy to point our fingers in judgment versus pointing people towards Christ. And so Paul's just reminding us in the midst of us, in the midst of our salvation, in the midst of us being made alive, he's just reminding us that you too were once dead. And so empowered by grace in our attempt to live like Christ, knowing that he showed us mercy and love in the midst of our deadness, so shall we see the world and show the mercy and the love of God in the midst of their deadness. And never fall prey to self-righteousness as if we did something to deserve this life in Christ that he's given us, this abundant, eternal life that he's given us. And we did nothing to earn it. And so let us guard against self-righteousness and be reminded of this amazing work that God has done in us. Those people that are opposing everything that God is and that God does, he loves them and he's moving towards them with mercy and love and sovereign and powerful grace. And so what's grace? It says here, by grace you have been saved. Grace is a term and a word that we use a lot and rightfully so, right? Grace is uh, the basis of salvation and it's God's undeserved favor uh, towards people. Uh, And it's a free gift, grace is. But listen, grace is more than just a gesture of kindness. Uh, Grace is a power, right? And so we can't miss that. Grace is the power to make us alive and to sustain us in our walk. And when we think about the word saved, it really is just referring to here in the Greek, God delivering people from death and giving them life. So saved means alive. So in other words, grace is God's undeserved favor towards people to make them alive and to sustain them. And it's the power to bring us to life, right? It's showing his kindness and his mercy all wrapped in the one, which is this grace that he gives us. So when it says by uh, grace you have been saved, it's God's demonstrating his grace in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where he showed his grace. And so therefore, we're brought to life in Christ and with Christ in his resurrection. And we're a brand new creation in Christ. That's what it says in verse six. Look what it says. It says, and we were raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we were spiritually dead, made alive, right? And then we're raised up with Christ in eternal life. Isn't that just an amazing picture? Seated with Christ. So even when we talk about eternal living now, look what it says. It says we're seated with him. 
That means we have, we're in, we're in this, we have eternal life now. So when we talk about eternal life now, this is where it starts. Being made alive, saved by grace, and then seated with Christ. And to me, it's just an amazing picture to be seated with Christ in the heavenly places, right? And so seated, when you think about being seated, there's this imagery of being finished. Um, And so my father-in-law, he's a pastor in Brooklyn, New York, but he has so many gifts that God has given him. Uh, Two of the gifts, I think, one of them is uh, just an ability to work with his hands, unbelievably gifted to work with his hands. Uh, and the second thing is, like, this gift of work ethic. I mean, he might be one of the, just the hardest work. He, like, looks for work to do when he comes over the house, and it's such a blessing. Um, but he has this thing that he's kind of known for now after working with his hands so much. So he doesn't even like to take a lunch in the midst of his work. He just says, you know, at this point in, in my life and at my age, you know, once I take my break, like, <laughs> the day's pretty much done. And so he says, I'm just going to work through it. And he makes this statement, I bet you can finish it. He says, I'll sit down when I'm done or finished, right? And so look at this amazing picture. Because of the finished work of Jesus, he's seated. And he says, listen, I'm not only going to save you, I'm going to allow you to come and partake in my resurrection and sit with me with the Father. That's eternal life now. And that's to be rejoiced about, that he would position us there. Now, listen, we didn't do anything. We didn't finish any work. He finished the work. And so we're there with him. We'll talk about our work, not to earn anything, but the work that is an outflow of this love and this grace that God gives us because we're here. But we are there with him in Christ as he makes us alive. It's an amazing picture to be seated with Christ. Let's look at verse 7. He does this so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So I think there's like two different types of rich people, right? There may be more, but for this case there's two. Flow with me here. Uh, The first one is the rich person that wants you to know that they're rich. Some of us may know that person. Based on what they do and maybe what they say, they want to show their wealth, they want to show their riches, and it it might be what they wear, whatever it is, but they want you to know that they're rich. The second rich person is the opposite, right? The second rich person is the person that you would never know that they're rich by the way that they live. You would never know it. If you found out, you'd be like, no way. You're not rich. You couldn't be. No way. And they just want to Push it off. Listen, I got, God is the first type of rich person. He's the first type of rich person. He's not only content with being rich in mercy and grace. He also wants to show us that he's rich in mercy and grace. Look at what it says. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. He wants to show how rich in grace and in mercy he is towards us. Now listen, when people do it, it's wrong for people to do it. Why? Because they're drawing attention to themselves that doesn't belong on them, right? This is pride. This is self-exaltation. It's not made for us to wave our hands and to draw attention towards ourselves. All this attention should be going towards God. But for God to do it, 
It's absolutely gracious for him to do it because he is the way and the truth and the life. And so he's waving his hands at us. When we can get distracted with everything else in the world that glitters, he's waving his hands. He's saying, hey, look at me. I'm rich in mercy and I'm great in love. And I have the sovereign grace and the power to take you out of the situation of deadness. And I can make you alive. Look at me. Come partake in life with me. It's gracious for God to show his love and his mercy and his grace and his riches and his wealth. Sometimes there's the dads that say that they love their kids all the time and never show it. And sometimes there's the ones that maybe show it all the time but never look their children in the eyes and say it. And God does both extremely well through Scripture. He over and over again tells us, I love you. I'm rich in grace and I'm rich in mercy. I love you. And then he shows it. And he sh- who's going to love you like that? Who's going to love you like this? It's an amazing picture. He does all of this because he loves us. How gracious of it. It is for him to say, look at me. I'm rich in grace. I'm rich in mercy. Another reason uh, he makes us alive is uh, so that we can walk in good works. And so read with me these final uh, portions of scripture that we're going to have for this morning, verses 8 through 10. This is what it says. It says, for by grace... We talked about this, right? By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we commonly think of grace as a gift, but grace isn't the only gift in the midst of salvation. It isn't the only gift. Listen, grace and faith are both gifts that can't be earned and that's given to us. We can't, uh, we, we get it. We don't earn it, right? And why? Number one, we talked about this. We were, we're dead, right? So we can't earn anything when we're dead. And number two, we can't pay the debt. Listen, knowing the depravity of our own hearts and all the issues that we have, could you imagine, just imagine with me just for a moment, knowing ourselves, if we had even like the tiniest little crack of a reason or an excuse that we can take credit for eternal life, man, we would kick that door down so fast, wouldn't we? Come on, we take credit for going to a good restaurant on Friday night. You and your wife are driving back home saying, that was my choice. No, I thought that was my choice. I sent that on Thursday. Like we would take credit if it was eternal life that we could take credit for. So in God's great wisdom, He makes sure that he shows us that we were dead and that there's nothing that we could do to earn it or deserve it or work for it. And the reason why is so that none of us would be able to boast about it. How gracious, how amazing, how wise of him to know us this way. Our salvation is an act of sovereign grace, not of works, not of anything that we could do. Listen, the object doesn't participate in its own creation, right? The creation cannot participate in that process of it being created. It's being created. 
There's no participation that's there. And notice the creation language here in verse number 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is amazing when you think about it. When you think about workmanship, or another translation of that is a masterpiece. Uh, my son has actually really taken up art recently, and, and he actually has shown a, a little bit of talent with it. But if you walk in to what he's trying to work on in the middle of it, you're going like, man, he lost his talent. Like, I don't think that's going to come out well. And then all of a sudden, he runs downstairs, and he says, Daddy, look, look what I made. And you're like, so you started a new picture? He's like, no, it was the same picture you saw. And listen, some of us are thinking, man, this all sounds great, but I, I don't feel like a masterpiece. Let me tell you something. He's not finished with you yet. He's not finished with you yet. And so as we continue to seek after God, when we're made alive, our heart is changing. Now we can seek. And so when we're seeking after God, we need to trust him in his work and know that he has the work for us to do. And that it's in the midst of being finished and completed. It's an amazing text. This transformation and this miracle of new life, what should be our response? What, what is the natural response once we're made alive? It's to obediently walk in the good works that he has for us. That's the response. Look at it. It's amazing to know that he has these, this work that he has for us to do, and we should obediently Walk in the good works that he has for us to do. God gave us new life so we can start giving, so he can start giving us the work that he has for us to accomplish. And typically when you talk to people, there's kind of two main themes to people when they're looking for significance in their life. One of them is love and one of them is purpose, right? Those pretty much start to sum up most of the big categories when people are looking for significance, and it's all right here. Who's gonna love you like this? Nobody loves you like this. Nobody is built to love you like this. It's a greatness of love for us to be made alive. And look at the purpose language that's here. God prepared it beforehand. It's amazing to know that we have an, an eternal purpose and a purpose that has an eternal impact and a purpose that existed before us. Imagine you're talking to the person that created, uh, let's say, uh, the modern hammer, right? I'm pretty sure that that person wasn't trying to make a shoe that turned out horribly wrong and said, wow, this would be great for driving nails. No, 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 no. He understood before he created the hammer exactly what he was trying to create. And so the same is for us. Listen, God has a plan and a purpose for your life that's so vast and so great, but we need to be made alive so we can start to walk in it. He's holding all of this work for us. And as soon as we're made alive, he starts to give it to us. And we could just walk in the good works that he has for us to do. He has a purpose and a plan for us. And we need new life. 
in order to walk in it. And look at the new life language here, finally. We go from walking dead to the walking in Christ. Isn't that amazing? We go from the walking dead to the walking in Christ. Remember in verse 2, it said this, it says, we walked following the course of the world. But because of God being rich in mercy, because of him being great in love, because of his sovereign grace, we are now walking in the good works that he gives us in Christ. So we go from walking to walking. Unbelievable picture. And it speaks of a new life, a new creation in Christ Jesus. And then remember, it says that we were, we're, we're seated with him, spiritually speaking, but we're walking down here. Because he, we're, we're in him, in his finished work. But he has work for us to do, not to earn anything. But because it's the outpouring of love and gratitude towards knowing that we were dead and that graciously, undeserving, he made us alive. And so we're walking in the good works that he has given us. Amen? This is the evidence of new life in Christ that we're walking in the good works he has for us by grace. And so in closing, uh, Dallas Willard uh, has just a great quote. I mean, to sum this up, and I think it sums it up so well, and this is what he says. Grace is opposed to earning, it is not opposed to effort. Because earning is attitude and effort is action. For we are called to act, but we must avoid the attitude of earning. And it's so true. And so this morning, you can be in a couple different places when you walked in today. Maybe you are saved. Maybe you've been made alive. But because of social media and the news and everything that's going on and the people at work and sometimes even the people in our own homes, like we found ourselves pointing our finger in judgment instead of pointing people towards Christ. And so maybe today it's just a reminder to say, hey, remember you were dead in your sin too. And God being rich in mercy and great in love, he pulled you out of the grave and seated you with Christ. Maybe you're going to say to me, Elijah, you know, I am made alive. But man, I'm all too familiar with my deadness. I actually feel stuck. Maybe I'm still dealing with some of the effects of my former sin. And I got to tell you, I'm just beating myself up all the time. Let me tell you something. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And because of what he did, he defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. Listen, you are forgiven by the power of his sovereign grace. And know that he has a purpose and a plan for you that is beyond anything that you could ever imagine or think of. You might be in the place where you say, I, based on this word, I still feel like I'm in the front of this passage. I've never acknowledged that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And by the sounds of it, man, it's like, for some reason, I could feel my heart beating for the first time. And 
man, it feels like I'm dead. Let me tell you something. This morning, all he's doing is waving his arms. He's just showing off a little. He's saying, listen, I'm rich in grace, and I'm rich in mercy, and I'm great in love, and I'm the only one that has the power to make you alive. And so maybe he's calling you today to be made alive so you could be seated with Christ so that your past will be gone, so that but God can be in the middle of your story. And that's our prayer today. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that we would just be overtaken with gratitude and joy for the work that you have done in our lives to make us alive, Lord. And I pray that if anyone is here that is dead in their sins, that by your spirit, you would make them alive. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for watching today's message. We hope it encourages you wherever you're at in your faith. If you enjoyed it, let your friends know. We'll catch you next time.